All right, I believe we are streaming live to a couple of destinations, Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for standing by. Uh, we are good to go, and I'm joined today by Michelle Bowens. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've been planning this for a while, Michelle. Uh, before we get started, before before we jump into it, I want to give you a little introduction here. Um, so for those of you who are not aware who Michelle Bowens is, he is the founder and the vision coordinator of the Peer-to-Peer -peer Foundation. And he works in collaboration with a global group of researchers in the exploration of peer production, governance, and property. Uh, Michelle is also the director of research of commonstransition.org, a platform for policy development aimed toward a society of the commons and a founding member of the Common Strategy Group. Um, uh, his three recent books, uh, uh, among which is the Network Society and Future Scenarios. Uh, I also have a copy of uh, the Peer-to-Peer -Peer Manifesto, which is another book you co-authored. And we've been in conversation um, fairly frequently or more frequently than we have been in the past. Uh, this year, Michelle, just talking about the current state of affairs from the pandemic to the global crisis, the economic crisis. And uh, you had posted, I guess, where we began uh, talking, you had posted an article on Liminal News a few months back, re yeah. really when the, the pandemic was was really kind of taking off and the economic crisis was just beginning, um, which I found to be very insightful. And uh, there was a word that I've, I've actually borrowed from you in reference back to you, uh, the pedagogical catastrophe. I just found that to be such a useful way of framing what's been going on. Uh, but yeah, welcome, Michelle. Uh, good to have you here. And uh, thank you for joining Mutations. It's a great pleasure. I, you know, I've been following uh, your work as well, and um, I, I'm really happy that you're kind of revived uh, Gepser for a new generation because it seemed to me it was a bit stuck in in some academic niche, uh, you know, and not out there. And and now Gepser's uh, ideas are are back uh, in the public sphere, which I think is a very good thing. Yeah, uh, agreed. Uh... And I know one of the connections we've had in the in the past. Uh, uh, for a while, you're writing for Reality Sandwich magazine, a couple of uh, pieces here and there. And I knew you were in the kind of extended network of integral-oriented thinkers and sort of um, uh, uh, the new wave of generalists, right? Because I think peer-to-peer yeah. -peer as, as a discipline is very transdisciplinary. So Absolutely. maybe for our audience, we can really start with some foundational uh, terms and introduce w what do you mean by peer to peer? Is this a theory? Is this a technology? It's kind of right. floating around on the internet, but, yeah. but what is it actually? So the first thing about peer to peer, it's a kind of relational dynamic. Um, so if you remember, you know, is it 15 years ago or even 20 now with Napster? Uh, you know, we started talking about peer-to-peer -peer computer networks and the basic idea is that every computer is autonomous and any message can go from any computer to any computer without passing through a server or any mainframe. So, you know, the agent is free to connect. Uh, and so you can use that for computers, but actually once you have it in computers, you also have it between people. So we now have a technical reality that you know two three four maybe seven billion people are able to connect with each other freely without asking permission um, and so with peer-to-peer -peer, you can do you can scale 
small scale dynamics at a at a virtual global scale. That's very important. You know the Dunbar number. So that was the idea that we can really only process and trust 150 people. Uh, and so when we're in a village, you know, we can we can solve conflicts by talking to people. Uh, it can be democratic, but once we scaled up, we had to we invented hierarchy. Uh, you know, to keep communication costs down because they don't work uh, at scale. Um, and so that meant that big would win would win from small in the whole of human history, you know, after the the first period of, of tribal organization, that was the rule. And now we have, because of the peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks, we have the capacity to create global projects with very complex architectures like Linux and Arduino and and actually, it's a collection of groups of four people on average. And yet we are able to, you know, to massively coordinate these complex projects. And I think that's new. In my more utopian moments, I call this peak hierarchy. Uh, because what it means that eventually a network can win from a from a centralized organization. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, something new in history. So basically the idea then is that this dynamic just as the printing, you know, writing changed society. Uh, you, you know, before writing and after writing, it's a different type of society. Before and after print, there was a different type uh, of society. And before and after networks, we will have different types of societies. So that's not to say that it's techno-deterministic. You know, it's not magically the technology that changes everything, but the technology is an affordance, a means, that allows people to organize differently mm -hmm. and so that's basically what i mean with peer-to-peer -peer. and then the second step is with peer-to-peer -peer, you can do distributed exchange you know that's just the market but you can also do common commoning create massive scale shared resources uh, and they are both local and global so we call it cosmo local what mm -hmm. is light and global is shared and what is heavy should be uh, relocalized for uh, obvious ecological uh, reasons. Um, so basically everything now is small, local, open and connected at the same time. You mm -hmm. do permaculture, your feet are in the mud, but you're with your head, you're connected to the global permaculture community. And that's pretty new at that scale that we have yeah. now. Yeah, and I, you mentioned a word, uh, there's, there's a lot to unpack there and a lot of significance, I think, for um, even the kind of immediate ecological context that we're in, which is, you're right, this technology enables a way of organization and distribution that wasn't possible before. And it seems as almost, almost as if our socioeconomic center of gravity is almost trailing behind the potential of these technologies and potential yeah. of the the socioeconomics of peer to peer, right? So I know you're you're very interested in that yeah. in that trail in terms of you know how do we lessen that gap, right? And how do we actually advance or mature peer to peer networks as a way to kind of circumvent or overcome more hierarchical. Yeah. Well, I, I I see our society and our civilization uh, moving away from com a commodity based value regime to a contributory value regime. So I see history uh, 
in terms of what is technically called the wave pulse theory of history. So seeing the history of humankind in terms of cycles, uh, extractive cycles and regenerative cycles. Um, so basically in any compet competitive system, whether it's for land or labor or capital, um, any competition for scarce resources is an iterative game that leads to oligarchy and concentration. And uh, even the winners in the game, in order to win that competition, will tend to overuse their resource base. And so uh, um, biophysical econo economists, uh, also Peter Turchin, Cloudynamics, Carl Polanyi, the double movement, um, Sorokin, uh, his shift from uh, sensate to idealist, uh, ideationist civilizations, all these things converge around this kind of similar understanding that when a competitive system overreaches itself, there's a kind of collapse and then there's a regenerative moment. And in this moment, the commons play a huge role because commoning is mutualization. Mm -hmm. So what you, so look at the end of the Roman empire, right? You have suddenly the emergence of a global open source design community called the Catholic church. Uh, with the uh, sister censors that you know they they are uh, small communities that are very active in uh, in using the forests and creating agriculture they're engineers and you know they they share across the whole European continental sphere all the innovations that they're making um, they have guaranteed uh, shelter and food and a rich spiritual life uh, at a much lower cost at the Roman elite. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's mutualization, it's sharing knowledge, and it's also relocalization. And so in every crisis, this is what you see is that this kind of response is, is there. And the commons is a central institution to, to mutualize. Um, and it used to happen at a you know regional scale, where you can see these cycles, and until basically the beginning of capitalism, which kind of put a, a temporary stop to it because of the technology, the productivity, and their ability to you know source a lot more out of the earth than previous forms of civilization. But then what happened is because we kind of suppressed it, we now are at a low at a global scale at the same situation of earlier civilization with that difference that there's nowhere to escape and so this means we actually in my view have to shift to a global uh commoning uh to a global vision of a commons transition using these peer-to-peer -peer dynamics um and you know at really every scale of, of human society mm -hmm. So we would define, I guess, maybe for our audience as well, can we define what, what we mean by commoning? Is this a kind of uh, mutual sharing of resources, essentially? Is that sort of the yeah. foundation of it? So there, there's a kind of uh, consensus definition that comes from the Ostrom, uh, you know, work. Uh, so Eleanor Ostrom was the kind of uh, main economist that studied the commons in history, and she got the Nobel Prize. Was it in... Uh, forgot when that was, uh, but not too long ago. Um, and she um, she kind of said the following: so a commons is a shared resource. K 
can be immaterial, free software, open design, can be material and energy co-op, um, you know, community land trusts, uh, fisheries commons, forest commons, whatever. It is maintained or protected by a community or a group of stakeholders, and it uses its own norms and regulations. Uh, so the first thing means it's a thing, it's actually a thing. And I, I stress that because some people are very metaphysical about the commons, but there has to be something in common that's real. Can be ideas, you know, like a software, but it there's something there. The second means that it's an activity, so it's a human choice. So you can't just say the ocean is a commons, it's not, no, the ocean is not managed uh, as a commons. It's an open access resource that everybody can abuse. That's not a commons, right? So that that uh, but the, the the fact that there is a choice that you can say okay let's do it as a market, let's do it via state planning or let's do it via commoning that is a real choice that we have in every case. Um, and then the the third aspect means that it's not market and not state. It's something that is autonomously governed. Uh, so these three things come together. Now, there is a critique that I should share with you. You know, mainly like green thinking is saying, well, you still see humans separate from the resource. Uh, so that's a critique that people have on this kind of classic definition. My answer to that is that distinctions are useful, that even though we are part of nature and nature, and nature is part of us, we are also in some way you know relatively separate from it in some ways and it's useful to keep that in mind um, and we can extend our notion of relationship and partnership to other living beings right so so my purpose is to remain within that definition but just to extend our definition to say well when we say communities we also can mean a relationship and a partnering with bees and 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 the the, the worms in the earth the earthworms you know it's, it's kind of expanding um some call it entangled humanism i like that because i i don't like the idea that is now very popular you know after postmodernism that there's no more difference between the humans and other beings i think there is a difference i think the level of consciousness is way more complex and way more integrated in human beings and that because we're the only species that can destroy the planet we also have much more responsibility you know to steward it and to be the guardians of it mm -hmm. as opposed to being just you know like one of the uh, the million species i think we we do have a specific role as humanity yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, uh, you've probably seen some of uh, my own conversations about this topic. I love, first of all, entangled humanism. That's a great, it's a great uh, description. Uh, you know, in Gepser's work and in integral theory, there's a lot of interest in how does the human world relate to the non-human world and can they collapse into each other? Or is there a new role? Is there a new relationship? And as you know, a lot of what I've been talking about is this kind of ontological shift where you know, the human might be becoming non-human, but the non-human is also becoming human. It's a two-way street. It's, this is, as you right. say, an 
a time of entanglement. So the role of a uh, of human culture, uh, of, of interiorizing natural processes is also yeah. the role of kind of exteriorizing uh, human yeah. culture into nature. So it's it's an interesting transformation. Yeah. You know, you know what's good about that is James Moore, Capitalism, the Web of Life is, is I think, a, a really good book about it and actually have it, well, I, I just moved it. I, had it. I finished it yesterday. And, you know, he talks about the double internality. Uh, so capitalism absorbs nature, but nature also adapts and absorbs ca capital. You know, mm -hmm. they, there's a mutual reactivity to to each other. Um, but you know, I, I'd like to give you like a, um, kind of an analogy why I think humans are uh, so <laughs> special in a way. Still, um, you know, when I work way too much, and so in the evening I I have. Um, something very sinful that I do, which is I occasionally watch cat videos. Um, and so what you see is that uh, cats and dogs, when they are with humans, can learn to love each other. It's something that almost never happens in nature. I'm not saying it, it doesn't happen at all, but it's very rare that... Um, you know that that and so in human families you see that very often is that they are capable you know just by changing the education of the the cats and the dogs as puppies you put them together they learn to see each other as one family and you know that's something humans can do that i i don't think it's just like an organic natural process um and you know it's, it's kind of like a, a edenic or adamic capacity to to uh, you know, that's what some world religions talk about, that, right? That, that that creating like paradise is one of our duties, um, and I, I I hold on to that. I, I think it's a mistake to completely throw away, um, you know, this kind of vision of, of humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I one of the questions that are coming up that might be a good distinction for the nerds uh, and and humanities geeks out there. Um, uh, Ryan is asking uh, how you compare entangled humanism to the post-humanism or post-humanism studies, which, it, I mean, the, the lines kind of blur, and I know these these become a little bit of hair-splitting distinctions, but I'm kind yeah. of curious if you have thoughts on that. Huh, it's, um, it's a very difficult, uh, you know, I, I wrote some essays in one of the books on post-humanism, um, and I made a documentary about transhumanism in the late 90s, so I've kind of uh, thought a bit about it, but um, I'm not sure I'm buying it. <laughs> I don't know how to say this. Um, um, you know, we have to expand our circle of care, right? That, that's something I, I learned from Wilbur, which I thought was really nicely put is, you know, you care about yourself and your family, then you expand to your community and you, you play or, you know, maybe your work environments, you extend your your and 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 you know then you become world centric, and um, so I, I think that's and so in the sense yes you know we we integrate technology we practice biomimicry, um, um, you know I think seeing animals as partners for me is is very uh, powerful right it is not just top down stewardship is is. Uh, you know, peers in the world, as it were. So that that is something that I I I, I prefer 
to kind of declaring, you know, we're post-humanism or trans, transhumanist. I like the word trans, but I can't use it here because it means something else, you know. Uh, but for me, trans, um, you know, it kind of integrates the old in the new. You mm -hmm. know, like when you say transmodernism, I, I like that word transmodernism beyond modernism, but it still kind of takes modernism with it. Um, I prefer that to post, which it's it's closed. You know, post is, and I, I'm guilty myself, I actually talk about post-capitalism, but I also always talk about the common-centric civilization. So I, I stress that it has a content. It's not just post-capitalism. <laughs> it's actually a common centric civilization where the market and and capital and the state have adapted to the to the commons being the central institution in our human future right so i think once we need to move from uh, infinite growth model to a you know steady state model Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if you think about the cycles I discussed in the beginning, the, you know, the gradative cycle, regenerative cycle, the new thing is that we can't afford to continue with the cycle because there's the, the planet is, is full in a way. And so we are going to have to learn to live in a steady state civilization that can live in harmony, you know, with the planetary boundaries. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and um yeah i forgot to thread now i wanted to say something but uh um the takeaway i'm getting oh, so far is oh yeah yeah, yeah I, I remember so i wanted to say that the commons is the means to that end it's it's mm -hmm. if you look at history the only human institution that was capable of keeping resources in the long term you know viable were the commons and if you look the you know you look at the satellite images you see Japan, Austria, Switzerland. Why is it so green? Because the mountain flanks are commons. They're well cared for by the villagers since generations. And there's actually a really nice example in, in Japan from the 16th to the 18th century, I believe. It's called the Tokugawa period, where Japan lived in harmony with its regional planetary boundaries with a fixed population. They, they could do it. Um, and now think about doing this at a global scale is going to be a lot more difficult, but I don't think it's going to be impossible, especially if we know that we didn't have to foreground the commons, uh, you know, as a central human institution. Yeah, I think that's, that's the important point. That was what I was going to mention as well, that, that uh, discussing post-capitalism, even in, you know, left communities, especially the, um, more economic progressive left, uh, which has been the kind of traditional left. Uh, a lot of the discussion from Mark Fisher to Jacobin, a lot of institutions like this are talking about post-capitalism and exit strategies. But really, I think what creates a much more um, attractive and creative, or like Mark, uh, 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 what's his name? Um, Bifo Berardi talks about with futurability, like what actually creates that potency of the future. I think it's actually having something to gravitate towards. So I really like yeah. that naming it, right? It's just a common centric socioeconomic yeah. culture. Everything else is going to revolve around it. And that gives yeah. us a kind of a structure to begin to work with in an image or a shape of the future in a way that I think yeah. just saying after capitalism leaves us kind of hanging. It's like, okay, 
well, what is it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I believe in seed forms. So the basic idea of seed forms is that, you know, before something comes in full bloom, it starts at the margins of societies by people who by choice or by necessity have to exit the dominant system, which is entering a downward spiral. Uh, so you have crisis of the system, exodus, and through this exodus, the new is emerging. So uh, maybe to give an example, um, you know, there was a, actually a social revolution that few people know about from 1975 to uh, um, 10, 10.50, something like that. There's a book about it. It's called The First European Revolution by Richard Moore. And so the real end of Roman Empire is 8th century. That's when the Muslims take control of the Mediterranean. And so there's no more flow of goods. That's really when Europe kind of completely implodes. So the ninth century is a horrible century of you know, permanent warfare, rape, you know, militias that steal the gold from the churches. And in 975, the monks of Cluny in France, with the people behind the Virgin Mary in front, start confronting the nobles and their misdeeds. Uh, and that leads to a social contract, uh, make love, not war. So uh, the feudals promise to marry their kids instead of fighting all the time. Um, what was the second rule? Uh, primogeniture, the oldest son gets everything, so they don't have to fight inside the family. And the first enclosure happens because the commoners are no longer able to hunt for meat. Uh, and that creates the necessity to farm more, so it creates a surplus in, in the agriculture. Uh, and these people start fleeing from the cities, uh, to the cities. And so they start inventing new things, purgatory, right? Before purgatory, uh, if you're Christian, you couldn't lend money because you went straight to hell. Uh, so purgatory says you can, you know, you can lend money and then you're buying indulgence and, you know, the church builds its cathedrals and there you go. You have commerce. The printing press allowed the ideas to spread much faster than the feudal powers could control the spread of it. Uh, double entry book accounting, right? So these are all seed forms, patterns that emerge in a system that, that entered a, a change and a crisis. Mm -hmm. And then these patterns find each other. Uh, then they form subsystems and eventually they start adapting the whole of society to their needs. So we have capitalism because we had capitalists, because Europe had the free medieval cities that operated with very weak, you know, imperial and royal control, the merchants were able to grow and create their own culture and their organizations. And that became eventually the model, you know, through the revolutions of the 18th century. Um, so that's kind of the model. So, and by looking at seed forms, you can look at potential futures, right? And that's what I've been doing. I thought that P2P in the commons were today the equivalent of printing, the printing press. Uh, and so what is happening around that? What are people doing? What what solutions are they inventing? And so that's what I do with the wiki. So the peer-to-peer -peer theory is what I call a low theory. And it doesn't mean a theory of everything, but it's very focused on explaining this particular transition. And I think, you know, what is likely to happen, you know, make informed hypothesis. Uh, so it has to be true and verifiable and if if reality changes you have to change your theory because you know a lot of seeds don't grow 
right? They start, but they don't. They not a, the. They don't get through the the filter. Um, the, my second criteria is simply coherence. You know, don't say the sky is blue there and the sky is black in another place. You have to be coherent. And then the third, and that's that's close to you know integral. Uh, the third criteria is very simply: what is the biggest, most hopeful narrative you can construct with those two first uh, categories, right? So it's in a way it's quite modest, uh, uh, but it's very empirical. It starts from really existing practices with concepts that are forged by the communities. Uh, you know, we try to invent very little. Uh, but we try to deduce from all these weak signals what could be underlying structures and, and ideas that that seem to be you know solid and carry forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to mention too. I think uh, I'd like to get into some some concrete examples, maybe even from this year during the pandemic, because I know you've been sharing quite a few of them. Uh, but just generally speaking, I think it's a good orientation. It's very similar, as you said, to integral theory, uh, particularly Gepser's work. I know yeah. Peter Pogany has, has had an influence on you. Yeah, I'm a, kind of I'm a big fan of his work. Pogany, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, as you know, Gepser really emphasizes latencies, right? Like his entire... Yeah cultural uh, philosophy is really an approach very similar, which is what is latently expressing some kind of new cultural yeah. attitude, a new relationship with time. I didn't realize that that, that concordance. Um, I mean, I'm not a Gepsa specialist. I, you know, I came through Wilbur. Yeah. Um, and at the time of Boomer Writers, I, I broke with Wilbur. I thought that was going too much in a neoconservative kind of direction at the time. Mm -hmm. Um and so i was you know one of the i was in the integral politics group uh in the very beginning but i i left soon afterwards and i i read the gepser um but i i found it quite difficult in the beginning uh and of course gepser focuses a lot on, on culture i i i focus less on culture but you know I, that's not because i i think it's not important i i do it's just question I, i'm more of a structuralist kind of thinker sure. i i like the underlying structures i think that's but i think that's that's good yeah. i mean you know like this yeah. is something that our, our you know we were mutually talking with uh, uh michael brooks um yeah. and just sort of la i'm layering this context in here we can we can circle back to this but you know one of the things that i talked about with michael was you know in terms of let's say a new consciousness or a new culture uh we tend to avoid looking at economics and sort of the material structure of things because you know that area seems like it's the most set in stone but i also think you know conversely that's actually the area that requires the most transformation right so right. if we're looking for a center of gravity socioeconomically we should probably look to the economic that's what i'm doing and that's what i'm doing because you know i i was a marxist when i was uh, in my 20s and i you know there's a lot of critique i could give on marxism but i think an enduring legacy is looking for structure and particular class structure i i think it's you know unavoidable if you want to understand any society that you also look at class and, and that is uh, very important to to keep looking at class uh, you know, you can enrich it in an integral way, but but I I think it's really important. And so I I look a lot at uh, and actually my last project that I worked this summer is 
an introduction to commons economics. I, I, I want to create a textbook. So how would you look at the economy and society if you foreground the commons rather than the market? So what, what are the consequences of that perspective? And so that's that's what we started doing uh, with the co-authors is, is, is starting to bring that out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, I'm sure you agree with that. There's no perspective that can encompass everything, but every perspective illuminates something and hides some other things that you can see precisely because you have that perspective. And so the most interesting to do, in my view, is bringing perspectives together. So what does degrowth tell us? What does post-capitalism tell us? What does um, post-growth tell us, right? So sustainability, uh, regenerative approaches, uh, transition towns, transition. Uh, I mean, there's so many approaches and they all kind of bring something on the table. And I, I would say what we bring to the table is this kind of institutional vision of the commons and, and the institutional logic of a post-capitalist society. That's that's basically, I think, what we what we focus. Mm -hmm. And can we maybe we can lean into this a little bit now? Uh, just uh, concrete examples uh, of these seed forms of the future. In terms of, we can start with this year. You, you can really go whichever direction okay. you'd like. But uh, I think that'd be wonderful. Yeah. So I'll I'll do first this uh, latest period, but then I I want to mention some really kind of amazing projects I've seen in the last few years. Uh, so, so what we see with COVID is really interesting. First of all, we see a conversion market and state failure, right? I mean, they really effed it up. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really interesting how, the, especially the Western neoliberal model completely failed uh, to, you know, uh, plan, predict, I mean, they even sold their, you know, their masks last year, and, and and also you see all these limitations, like they can't even mobilize other factories, you know, um, or you know, use vets to to do stuff. Um, so I mean, all these, you know, uh, how do you call it, legacy and and inertia. It, it was terrible to see, and then you also see that without the state, ninety percent of the companies would have gone bankrupt. So that's a really interesting situation. Um, you know, showing a, like quite a substantial issue with resilience. And mm -hmm. so because of that, well, we saw that as a compensating mechanism, the commons came to the fore. So first of all, mutual aid groups that, you know, emerged everywhere where people started helping each other. Uh, then the second aspect would be make the makers. Uh, you know, they mobilized massively and were able to produce all kinds of medical hardware that industry wasn't able to produce, uh, you know, for months. Um, what you then also saw was that the world wasn't ready for it. So, uh, you know, while, while they were making these things very successfully, the hospitals and the government were afraid to accept it because of re regulatory problems, litigation problems, so this is what, what I work on as well, is it calls for public commons cooperation protocols, right? And just maybe to give an example to your to our listeners that may not be familiar with this, in Italy, there was a constitutional amendment around subsidiarity, organizing at the lowest possible level. Bologna took this to justify a Bologna regulation for the care and regeneration of the urban commons, 
which allows any citizen group to say, we want to care for this resource. In other words, we want to comment. Then they, you know, they talk together, they make an accord, a commons accord, and then the city acts as a convener for the support coalition for these commons projects. So they had like 100 the first year, 300 the next year. They had, they have now 250 cities who took it over. And 1 million Italians are active in urban commons that weren't active before. So that's the power of institutional design, right? It's something is happening, but you smooth it out. You create structures and processes so that it becomes a normal thing. Rather than a hard and pioneering thing, it becomes a normal thing to do urban commoning in Italy. Um, so that's, I think, a good example of what happened around uh, the, the COVID because what we now need, and that was happening in France with the public hospitals, they created their own kind of Bologna system. <coughs> so a group of hospitals, public hospitals in Paris, created a whole process to more rapidly accept the productions of the maker spaces. Um, so I think that was a very interesting period to look at that. You know, it's kind of suddenly this kind of marginal uh, movement that was, of course, well known to digital people and digital generations. But now, like, territorial policy in France is now going to be centered around makerspaces. So the Bank of Territory is now going to fund massively uh, these, what they call in France, open source third places as a kind of place to do territorial policy and territorial development. I think that's pretty fantastic. Uh, and there's now even a discussion in the parliament about a constitutional amendment around the commons. So, you know, you see that there's, there's progress. It's not just like an idea and not just like grassroots. It's, this is moving. This is uh, probably the least in Anglo-Saxon countries, I must say. Uh, but definitely uh, on the European continent, uh, this is uh, moving. And so there, I did a study about urban commons in Ghent in 2017. And so we mapped them out and there were 10 times more than 10 years before. So you're talking about, you know, a tenfold growth in 10 years. And after, after that studies took place for the Flanders, for Belgium, for the Netherlands, for Catalonia, the same everywhere, a tenfold growth after 2008. So we are really living it. You now this is not just an idea. This, so you, you take the um, the amount of open source code; it's exponential. You take the amount of urban commons; it's nearly exponential. You take the sharing sharing economy, which has a very capitalistic side, Uber, Airbnb, but you know you take it complementary currencies. There's thousands of them now. So all these things are are moving uh, and and scaling up. You know, not not enough, but they. You know, I probably would guess that two or three percent of the urban populations today is active in commoning mm. in some way or another, whether it's an energy co-op or collective purchasing of uh, organic food or co-op housing or co-housing or co-working. I mean, you know, mutualization is really on the rise. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's certainly something I've, I've witnessed myself uh, and, and sort of as a kind of um response, of course, to the crisis and the lack of institutional support during um, both the biological pandemic and then the economic uh, collapse, right? And there's really yeah. been um, a withdrawing of support from the state, just traditionally speaking. Um, yeah. So, so 
maybe we can keep giving a couple of, uh, a few more examples. I know you mentioned the, the food common study in Portugal, which was very interesting. And I know temporary, um, but I guess, I guess my question is, is uh, how do we get to, or maybe there isn't right. But what's the threshold to really kind of bring this more to the center? Is it going to require more pedagogical catastrophe? Is it going to require more? Yeah, I, I, I think it will go, you know, like in, in uh, what you call it, um, punctuated equilibrium. Um, so I do think that the current system, so here's the big question that we don't really have the answer for, although I tend to think it's, it's a final crisis. So here's the idea. Is this just one of these kind of structural readjustments of capitalism, right? You had the mercantile system, the Smithian system, the welfare system, the neoliberal system. Is this just like that? So we, we're expecting some new kind of capitalism down the road, which will integrate a substantial amount of green and peer-to-peer -peer in order to find some new arrangement. That's the possibility. The other possibility, which is the thesis of James Moore, is that Capitalism has always grown through frontiers. So you have the commodity sphere where we exploit labor, but we always needed cheap nature. He calls it the four cheaps. Uh, cheap labor, cheap food, cheap energy, and cheap materials. Well, they're not there anymore. That's the problem. They're not there anymore. So it could it could actually be much more serious than that. It could be actually a post-capitalist reality that is waiting on the other side of the crisis. And so now we've entered a downward spiral, right? Where all the cascading uh, crises are reinforcing each other. And so this is going to be a pretty terrible decade, um, uh, which at, paradoxically then also reinforces the need for alternatives and therefore by necessity, more people switch to the commons, mm -hmm. right? So it's first the pioneers. The pioneers are idealists that maybe they don't really need to do it because they have this kind of anticipatory um, vision of what needs to be done early, much earlier than normal people, right? And they're the ones doing it, and they're they're precarious and they don't earn money, and you know. Uh, but then the second wave is by necessity. You know, young people don't find a job. Well, they might as well learn uh, to keep their skills in open source community or they can't go to the restaurant. They might you know, be interested in mutualizing, uh, purchasing healthy food. Uh, they might be interested in a community land trust. I mean, the, all these things come, uh, you know, because also people have to do it as an alternative solution. So I think that is happening now. And I wanted to give you maybe some really nice examples of innovation. Is that okay with you? Yeah, please, please. Yeah. So, um, so this was a person in in uh, in Brazil where I went several times, uh, up to a month uh, at a time. It's called Curto Cafe, and so uh, you know, a, a man from the coffee business would think, why can't we have good coffee in Brazil? Because the there are four categories, A and B go to the West, so they get the crap coffee left over. Uh, and why do the people who actually make the coffee, they're you know, nearly starving. They get like not even uh, minimum wages. And said, can we make coffee so that we have good coffee in our country and without exploiting the worker? And he started completely redesigning it. So first step, he called it feral uh, transparency. 
so he didn't want he didn't want uh, certification because usually you know western ngos control the process and it's very expensive etc cetera, etc cetera. let's do full transparency you know where the coffee comes from what farmer uh, makes it you know everything about his family that you want to know so all that is open all the costs all the costs it's an open accounting system second step is they made a machine a distributed coffee uh, burning machine grinding and burning machine that quadrupled the income of the farmers because they don't have to bring it to a coffee company which takes all the profit third mutualized rent so crowdfunded rent so they basically say we want to be in this shopping mall please support us if you want good coffee and the people who invest get free coffee that's their dividend of their shares right and then they go to the shopping mall and there they have a poster which exactly explains how much the coffee costs and why and people there's no waiters no waiters the people just kind of uh, give what they want for uh, what you call it like a token uh, and then they actually also hacked the nescafe machines you know the you know the nespresso machines so that you can actually renew them yourself without buying uh, new ones i mean can you imagine what an innovation that means like in every single step they've used network technology and sharing and transparency to completely uh, reform the supply chain in something that is, what is it? It's not a company, it's a community, it's a commons. Mm -hmm. And everybody is happy, uh, the farmers are happy, the coffee users are happy, uh, you know, everybody in the chain has a role and work, I mean, that's, I, I, and so they had a little store when I went there the first time and last year, they have two huge hangars, is that the right word in English, you know, these, like empty factories that they took over yeah. hangers mm -hmm. and so they trying now to move into uh, beer and cheese and chocolate using the same model amazing okay next example also from brazil fora de Weishu is a um, very poor kids in northeastern brazil that said you know why are musicians so poor here and so they started mutualizing the studios and the equipment for musicians so musicians go to them and they don't have money. So they kind of go on credit and they have a credit card with four different complementary currencies. And one of them is studio time. So then they organize the concerts and they keep a percentage to keep back, to pay back the, the you know, the, the credit that was in advance was studio time. And they have their own university, they have their own bank, they have their own media, um, and I, you know, I went to one of these houses. They have fifteen. They had fifteen communes, and three hundred collectives. And in a commune that was like totally collective, and you basically have a suitcase full of money, where the members responsibly can take whatever they need to live. Uh, you see, again, a completely different approach to production and consumption, where it's an ecosystem. The musicians, the young people, they all kind of work together. Um, so that's what I like. It's this kind of fundamental innovation in, you know, not just economic models, but social models, right? Uh, and what's great about peer production, you know, commons-based peer production, is that people start from their intrinsic motivation. Like you, you do what you what you what you like, 
and you do it in a community that's all oriented around the same social object. Uh, and because you're all freely uh, contributing an open system, you cannot have simple hierarchical relationships because if I don't pay you, why should you listen to me? Uh, right? And so what happens in the commons is that the motivation and the passion comes first. That creates a community and the community creates the economy because everywhere where there are people, there, there's an economy. Uh, but so, but the logic is in, inverted. You don't just look for a job hoping that you might like it. You you exercise your passion, and you create an economic life around. And I'm pretty sure that's what you did, uh, and that's what I do, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and then slowly create people who believe in the same uh, object. Um, and ours is very simple. We peer produce knowledge about peer production. That <laughs> that's our social object. No, that makes a lot of sense. And these are very uh, hopeful examples, I think, at, at this time. Uh, you know, uh, one of the critiques, which I think is just from a sheer lack of, of awareness of how peer-to-peer -peer commons are proliferating right now. And really, if you think about it, and this is sort of what I, the, the message I kind of grokked from the late David Graeber, um, the anthropologist, and that, you know, if, if you leave, if you push away a lot of this extra kind of ideological stuff. Like people want to socialize, they want to connect with mm -hmm. one another, right? We, the commons is human centric because it's community centric yeah. and out of that flows, you know, material interests, material desires, material production, right? We wanna be in a yeah. community and thrive together. So what do yeah. you wanna create? Um, so yeah, so I, I guess my question is because there's a number of people asking about examples um, in particular uh, countries um i've i've heard quite a bit and this is something i brought up to ben burgess as well uh the mondragon example uh, worker yeah. cooperatives as something kind of more leaning towards this direction although i think what you're talking about is really a much uh yeah well i i see the co-ops as the commons of the labor movement so mm -hmm. remember so first we had natural resource commons right and they were primary even in a feudal society commons were very important so I like to tell the story about the Rogan Tide procession, which was the most important collective ritual in medieval villages, which is every year the village would, you know, have a procession around and confirm all their commons. It's also called beating the bounce. So it was really constitutive of their their very identity was commons centric. This is what what constructs the parish is, you know, partly our belief, our, our joint belief, but it's also that we have these commons that constitutes our human community, right? But then capitalism encloses the commons. And so all these uh, chased away persons become workers in the city where they die when they're 32 and, you know, 80% of their kids die and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's terrible until, you know, 1850, 60s, terrible situation. And they create the mutualization of risk, right? So all of these things like fraternities, mutualities, uh, social insurance, they're actually social commons that were created by the working class to manage their life's risk that, that the state was not yet taking upon itself. So while the physical commons got privatized, the social commons got statified to the welfare system. Um, and uh, so co-ops, 
I have to, I have some, I mean, I think Cubs are very good, but they have, they have two weaknesses. One is managerialism. So over time, they tend to create a separate managerial elite. And second, because they have to compete in a capitalist society, they become worker capitalists. So they, and that's like a good example would be Mondragon. When they go to Poland, they don't want to hire, they want, they don't want to accept the Polish workers in the co-op because that dilutes their bonus. And so then they're going to hire the Polish workers on a minimum wage, and then they're going to have a strike against Mondragon, right? And and that that is a, a, a structural weakness of co-op. That's why I propose open co-ops as an alternative. And an open co-op is a co-op that is structurally aligned to the commons. So it, it, in its very status, it says, we're not just working for ourselves, our co-op members, we are actually working for the whole of society and we are going to produce something for the common good explicitly. So if a co-op uses free software, it creates software that's good for the whole world. If the housing co-op in Quito, this is a real case, you know, cleans up the, the ravines and makes it into a public park, it's good for the co-op members because they have a nice park next door, but it's also good for all the other citizens that can use a public park, right? So I think that's where co-ops should go. They, Cobs should should you know, integrate the commons uh, in order to have a kind of a next generation co-op. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, because the old co-ops, they're better than, you know, in my view, better than a for-profit company, but they still have these two these two structural weaknesses. Mm -hmm. That's a helpful distinction because you know I've I've seen a lot of promotion about uh, Mondragon and I've seen a lot of like uh, movements that say platform cooperativism, which. Yeah. Um, at a very interesting conference in New York City, I attended. I know, I know they regularly do this. So, uh, uh, I, I really appreciate your distinction that it should be or ought to be structurally aligned with the commons. Yeah. And it seems like there's concrete strategies for doing that. Um, let's let's kind of shift. I mean, I feel like we we we're going to need another hour to uh, in in the coming weeks or maybe next month or something to to get to more yeah, of the material. But for, for the time being, I'd love to just sort of bring in more, more questions from our, our listeners here. And um, yeah, uh, Lucy Evers, let me just. Oh, I don't have very well. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, yes, the, there's a huge failure of imagination. This is a little bit earlier, just talking about, you know, post-capitalism. Um, and then, let's see, we did have a question from, if I can get it over here. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis was asking what common commons resources were addressed in Bologna. Okay. Uh, he's asking for specifics yeah. there. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the critique of, of the model. That is, uh, what is it? Squares, abandoned factories, um, parks that were not well maintained, um, empty buildings, right? So that's a critique that you could have on the Bologna model that it's, it's designed for kind of not structural commoning. Um, so I, I didn't mention that because I'm actually happy that the, you know, what is so important in Bologna is that public commons cooperation protocol. I think that's kind of like why it's so important and as a societal advance, but then in practice, it's not sufficient because it, it's, it's only commons, you know, particular, you know, 
um, very local, smallish type of, of projects. So that's that's a potential weakness. But what you also have to see, of course, if you have a lot of them, that starts counting anyway, right? It's it's you're not talking about one building. You're talking about 300 projects. That really starts to change the city anyway. Um, so uh, structural commoning, uh, you know. Uh, so th this is one of the things that I look at. Um, um, we need to mutualize our provisioning systems, right? So one of the things is we need is we need to systematically look at, as public policy, how do we mutualize our urban provisioning systems? Um, and there's a movement that I really like. It's called Factor 20 Reduction. And uh, John Takara knows a lot about that. You should maybe talk to him once. He's an absolutely great ecological designer, lives in the south of France, is English. And uh, for example, there's one report that shows that if we use you know, mutualized cargo bikes and pedelecs, these electric bikes, we can save 98% of energy usage for the same level of merchandise. I mean, that's absolutely amazing, right? So this is one of the things we need to do. And then what I, when I talk about cosmolocal production, I'm actually talking about the next phase of commoning. So you had the physical commons, the social commons of working class, the digital commons, the urban commons, but urban commons, they are more about redistribution. They're not about production. Um, so, you know, like you don't make the house, but you, you do a co-op ownership, but you still need a, a, a firm to, to make it. The next step is productive ecosystems. That's that's really important. And so for an example that is a first example, but I think it's quite significant, is there are craftspeople all over Europe that work with matter, materials, you know, steel, plastic, wood, 3D printing. There's 120 of them. They mutualize their work in a factory. Um, and then they have the invisible factory where they share their designs, coordinate collective work. And so again, it's very local. They do stuff locally in the city, but they are connected at the European level in this multi-factory network. So I think that's a good example of an emerging, uh, actually productive ecosystem, right? So the next step then is, and this is uh, what I wrote in 2019 in P2P Accounting for Planetary Survival, is to ask the question, what is the ideal cyber physical infrastructure that we would need to produce for human needs within planetary boundaries? So, you know, totally integrate all the so-called externalities so they become visible. So first of all, we need accounting because accounting is how we see the world. And the current accounting is double entry accounting, is narcissistic accounting. What comes in, what goes out, how much capital and profit do I keep for myself? There's no vision of the ecosystem. There's no vision of nature. So we need contributive accounting, which is accounting for contributions. And this is the big revolution that this is what I try to explain to everyone. We now have a commodity value regime. This means we have to exploit people and nature, create a surplus through extraction that we then reinvest in generative and compensatory uh, activities through tax or philanthropy. But that means that the generative activities are marginalized, right? 
they the 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 we believe value comes from the market and then a part of that is punctured, you know is punctured to fund something else what we need is to realize that contributions is value so making people more happy better and improving and regenerating nature right so that is what is wealth and so we should reorganize our economy based on the unit of contribution so contributive accounting does that and there's many many examples ecosystem accounting this is called resources events agents so instead of having blind double entry accounting what you have is every action you do is visible in 3d and it's placed in the ecosystem and then the third one is actually integrating thermodynamic flows in the accounting systems so you have global thresholds and allocations uh, and that is translated and distributed in all accounting systems that you have context-based sustainability this is called r3o.org very important project uh, so all three of them exist uh, in various prototypal and experimental forms uh, and so you kind of have to put them together and then what you get is a three-layered economy which the basic layer is stigmergy open mutual coordination that's what's happening in the open source production every coder can see all the code it's a holoptical system not panoptical but holoptical every you can see it from every angle and so an individual can adapt in real time his behavior to the needs of the ecosystem on top of that you build generative market functions for rare resources um, so for example the fish coin is a coin that knows how much you can fish without destroying the reproduction capability of the fish right so that's the second level so the market is recognized and integrated and the third level is orchestrated planning so what the function of state planning would be but instead of telling people what to do or to ration what you say is these are the outer limits and in between you're free but here are the outer limits and you can see them and so they can inform every decision that you make uh, and you know all the tools that that we need they're ready they just need to be integrated and, and applied and and be made competitive and so that's what I'm looking at you know distributed ledgers as a public uh, policy uh, resource so imagine you want to decarbonize now we do competitive procurement winner take all or we do speculative carbon markets which don't work well why don't we do we say to all citizens individually or collectively you can declare your contribution it will be peer-reviewed and verified and you get tokens and these tokens are paid either to taxation because it's a recognized public priority or by institutions that are willing to share their externalities that they get from your activity. And a good example is the community land trust in France, Terre des Liens, calculated already in 2016 that they saved the French state 350 million euro in depollution of water costs that they don't have to do because organic farmers don't pollute the water. So you need a system whereby the state or big corporations recognize that they are profiting you know from positive externalities 
and then part of there of the gains are shared. And so what you get is kind of generative funding directly for contributory activities. So that's for me is the future. Uh, we have to, to see that wealth comes from contributions, hmm. not from commodity extraction. <laughs> we, we probably need both. Uh, I'm sorry, I talk a lot, but no, no. Uh, so if you, if you, for example, uh, Bernard Lietard, who was a, a Belgian economist who actually created the Euro, co-created the Euro, um, he said that pre-capitalist systems had dual currency systems. The money of the king, based on taxation, uh, because he needed to pay soldiers. Um, and so then people would get in debt and, you know, they would need the money to pay back the debt and that would then fund eventually the, the royal army. But they also had commons money. So yin and yang money or cold and warm currency. And you still have that, for example, in Bali, uh, where, you know, the watershed systems are funded by a separate coin. So we, we need to get back to that system. Uh, I, I'm not sure that a 100% contributory regime would be possible because I do think we need to extract, right? We are natural beings and we, you know, we've been designed that way that we need to eat. Even if you're vegetarian, you still need to extract, uh, you know, plants. Um, so I think we probably need both, but we, we do need to shift to the primacy of contribution in the kind of next civilizational system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um Great points, and I think I'd like to switch over to, uh, let's see, this is a good question, and it kind of relates to what we're talking about in terms of scaling, um, or let's let's go to Lucy's comment first, that uh, the small stuff is important but needs to scale, that's how we come to cosmo-localization, or globalization, as I call it, as Lucy calls it, and then in related to that question, Oriana was asking about the role of institutions is to scale up, citizen initiatives, but how is yeah. it done when institutions are corrupted? All right, well, so the, the the first way to scale is viral and that's, you know, that's happening all the time. Like permaculture, it works, so everybody's doing it. So it, doesn't, it didn't need the state to scale and it's scaling uh, horizontally, uh, but I believe that's not enough. So one of the things that I've proposed to the, the cities that I work with is this idea of using leagues of cities as governance mechanism. So think about it. So we need to mutualize these provisioning systems. Instead of Airbnb, we need Fairbnb. Instead of uh, Uber, we need ride-sharing co-ops, et cetera, et cetera. But what would be enormously wasteful would be for every single city to develop its own software to do this, right? So that so this is called pro a protocol co-op, a global open design depository that is managed by a coalition of cities, supported by a coalition of ethical and impact finance and co-ops and solidarity economy, but then can be applied locally by uh, co-ops or any, anybody else, right? So you mutualize and scale by using cities in this case. You don't need necessarily, necessarily nation state. Um, so that's one of the ways. And so public commons uh, cooperation protocols, for example, there's this discussion in America about a good Samaritan law. Uh, so one of the ways to facilitate the adoption of these, you know, distributed makers would be to say, well, in times of crisis, 
we need to abandon some of that top-heavy regulation that prevents small players to do to be active and innovative, right? So we we need Commons law. We we need a whole arsenal. Uh, so we need to redesign our institutions, and we also need all kinds of legal adaptations because our system was made for the binary state and private. Mm -hmm. The Commons was completely marginalized. And I once talked to General Orsi in the in the U.S. And if I remember correctly, um, you know what she said was, "Do you know that it's forbidden in the U.S." to dry your clothes in the sun? Do you know it's forbidden in the US to collect rainwater? Do you know it's forbidden in the US to grow vegetables in front of your house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're citing all these county regulations that exist. Uh, and they're all designed to protect the market, the scarcity of the market, right? They're anti-commons. Um, and so the good news is that in France, did I talk to you that there is a constitutional amendment for the commons being discussed? Maybe not. So that's one thing that's happening. You raised that point. Oh, okay. But the second thing is that, uh, so you have 26 regions in France and the 27th region is actually an administrative commons. So it's where all the functionaries can uh, work and research together. And so last year they studied the commons and this year they're studying commons law. I mean, that's fantastic for me. You know, I get brain gasms from this. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we, I mean, it's dark times and many things are going badly. But, you know, if, if we, you put yourself in the place of the imaginal cell of the caterpillar, don't focus on you becoming mush, but focus on the butterfly that's waiting on the other side of the, of the tunnel, right? <laughs> and and that, that, that is basically one of the things that I want to help doing is to show people what's on the other side potentially and so then i can focus their constructive energies instead of becoming despondent by the decline of what we have mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes yeah, as, as uh marx actually said you know uh we need to listen to the poetry from the future um but i, I love your usage of the imaginal cell that's something that comes up quite a bit in our communities and uh, you know i encourage you know, i think there's a, a mix of peer-to-peer uh, -peer listeners who are part of your community on uh, your online networks there's folks from the integral community who are listening there are folks on the uh, kind of the digital left sort of internet left yeah. uh listening here and i think you know the good news is despite this being a very dark times that we kind of have to expect this and maybe like for our follow-up session we can kind of deep dive more with um, yeah. integral theory and, and Gepser and Pogany actually because yeah. I know Pogany talks quite a bit about these as you mentioned bifurcation yeah. points right so yeah, I think having a lay of the land makes it a little bit if not yeah. you know easier to accept then at least gives us a little bit of uh, hope yeah. you know I, I I want to maybe address one thing which is uh, the corruption, right? Because that seems to be an important question. Um, so let me first say that my approach is about reverse co-optation. Generally speaking, a lot of people on the left will always complain about, yes, but it will be corrupted. Yes, it will be taken over. Yes, it will be co-opted, you know, and it's kind of like a self-defeating. Uh, of, of course, these things are happening, but if you only focus, then you're basically, basically destroying your own you know, will to change because you're always 
already seeing the feed before it even happens. So what you have to think of is reverse cooptation. Not how capitalism is going to eat you, but how you are going to eat capitalism, right? So what kind of market mechanisms work for the commons? How can I do transvestment, which means changing capital into commons? Mm. Uh, and you know what kind of techniques? So we really need to think positively in terms of solutions and say, how can we adopt market and state to our needs? And the corruption issue is, you know, is function of our current system. It, it's 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 structural corruption, right? So what happened is we built nation states, and they're they're trying. They co-emerge together, and they're three in one. If one is, is under attack, the two others will help it survive. The problem is that capital has detached itself. So we now have transnational capital, and, an, and the nation and the state no longer have the power to challenge it. So um, before this, you know, Polanyi would talk about the double movement. And what he said that every 30 years or so, uh, you know, the market frees itself from society and the state and starts doing bad things. And then the people, the nation revolt and force the state to re-regulate and re-embed the market. And that's no longer working. That That's, it, I mean, it's organically working in the sense that it emerges. So we have left and right-wing populism, which are exactly these kinds of reactions, right? I, I analyze Trump as, you know, giving up empire for the for the nation and analyze the right-wing Democrats as choosing empire above the, the interest of the local people. Uh, so, you know, but it can be on the left, can be on the right, but you see people mobilize, they want change. But national politicians have very little say. Even America have, you know, not as much power against that global financial uh, power. So what do we need to do? And I know this is a long-term, I don't see any other solution. So one of the solutions is to create translocal and transnational power. So we need. So if we're in the commons and the digital commons, particularly, our feet are in the mud, but we're connected with these global networks, and then we have to use that organizational and institutional power. We have to form planetary guilds. We have to form planetary streams of commons-based capital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we have to become in parallel with capital, we have to make strong and stronger commons that so that we can also, you know, put pressure on the state, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a power that we lost and politicians lost their power as well. So if they're corrupted, it's also because they can't really do that much. Uh, you know what I mean? So this is, I mean, so I understand why, you know, some people on the right are wanting to restore the sovereign state. So I predict that in the next decades, that is part of our reality is that far from disbanding, you know, a lot of countries will actually re reinforce the nation state. But there's a lot that the nation state can solve. So even if they do that, you know, what about Fukushima? What about, uh, you know, the a global collapse of the food production cap capacity? I mean, there's so many things that you cannot solve at the nation state level. So and so that's why that will never be enough. We we need this translocal, transnational. 
And you notice I'm not saying international, right? That is a big difference. And so the big challenge for humanity is to combine geographical uh, governance, you know, maybe bioregional, and strengthening the democ local democracy and all and territorial development through the commons and everything we can do. But then the other side we cannot forget is that we have to manage and govern the flows. And so I think in some way that commoners are creating virtual nations, right? We can call them guilds, doesn't matter, but they're creating like ins instituted communities. And, you know, I live in Chiang Mai and, and think maybe then we kind of close with this. Uh, I, I live in Chiang Mai, which before COVID was the global capital of nomadic work. 25,000 people in one Facebook group and they're working remotely, you know, the web designers, developers, lots of blockchain people. Uh, Mozilla Foundation is here. Um, and, you know, they work here. Um, and they're organized. They have their own, like the embassy, which is a network of apartments in all over the world. They go from here to Medellin, to Tenerife. They have their circuits. Um, so these, these people are actually building something that you know that is what I'm talking about. They they and they use the nation state as translocal workers. So the most libertarian amongst them have this called a six flag theory, which says, okay, put your NGO there, pay your taxes there. You know they kind of use the nation state from a trans nomadic point of view. I, I think that's kind of interesting to see that, and I think that will happen as peer production grows as we create these open design communities, you know, th this is another part of the world that is growing and that will kind of co-determine how we organize the planet. Mm, mm, mm. Well said and well, uh, it's a good place to, to conclude. Um, we have a lot of questions that uh, would take us in very different directions. So let's, let's bookmark those for the next time. Um, I'm seeing a kind of cluster of, let's see, like talking about blockchain, uh, the kind of digital end of things. And then some other folks are also kind of asking for more of the cultural evolutionary questions. So let's do that with the with the Pogany Gepser uh, okay. technology deep dive. But uh, thank you so much, Michelle. This was a fascinating thank conversation. You, Deeply and thanks for the, you know, really stimulating questions because that that counts just as much as, you know, the person who is, who is there. Yeah, certainly. Thank you, Michelle. And uh, we'll have you back on soon. And thanks everybody right. for, for watching with us. Take Great. care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.